The following interview took place at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Coming home from Buddhism to Judaism, a conversation with Mr. Rob Fashler, interviewed by Rabbi Avraham Fagelstock. Good afternoon. Welcome. It's my privilege to interview Rob Fashler, who's a close friend for many, many years, and he has a very interesting journey. And um, today we'll try to go through that journey and I'm sure part of his journey will be helpful to every one of us to some of the journey of our own life. So Rob, I'd like to start off by saying we're living in a very difficult, challenging times. People are looking for meaning, purpose. Tell us a little bit about your journey and your life, how to found some clarity in these difficult times. Thank you, Rabbi. The issue uh, of our society, political, all the turbulence that's going on is really the core issue. I've never in my life, and I'm 70 years old now, I've never seen such deception, turbulence, anger, division, vanity and nothingness uh, going on in our society. It's very, very difficult for young people today. In fact, it's almost impossible. From and I, I do encounter a lot of young people. However, there's one individual who has identified the problem and also suggested, not suggested, uh, uh, prescribed the appropriate cure for it, and that's the Lubavitcher Rebbe. This is illustrated to me by, oh, hold up the mic, okay. This is illustrated, illustrated to me by the story when Benjamin Netanyahu was appointed the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations. He went and visited with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. The Rebbe told him, you will go into a house of lies, but remember that in a hall of perfect darkness, if you light one small candle, its light will be seen by everyone from afar. Your mission is to light a candle for truth in the Jewish people. What young Jewish people have today is not one candle originally lit by, written, lit by the Lubavitcher Rebbeim, but thousands of candles in their, the Shluchim who have taken that message out and are holding candles brightly in this sea of darkness. So there is hope. All you have to do is come home. So tell us about your early upbringing. I grew up in Montreal. Uh, I lived in neighborhoods that were secular and Jewish, Cote St. Luke and Hampstead. Um, my parents were complete atheists. In fact, they were worse than atheists because they, they were hostile to religion. And, and their favorite target 
Never mind uh, Christians or anybody, were Hasidim. They were simply an object of ridicule. Timeless occasions, we would be driving along the streets of Montreal and my parents would see some Hasidim running by and they'd say, look, look at these idiots, you know? Anyway, uh, that, that was uh, their attitude towards religion. What, was their, what did they value? They valued materialism. Nonetheless, I had a bris. <laughs> Who knows why? I think it was because it was socially acceptable. Uh, or, and it would not be socially acceptable if I had not had a bris. But my parents were lost themselves. They were confused. They did want the best for me, and they tried their hardest. And they sent me to, to get good education. And they, they, they encouraged me to be successful and make a lot of money. That, that's what they thought was the best thing to do. And the way to do that would, was to be as worldly as possible. Well, worldly sounds good. International sounds good. But what it really means is to be assimilated. And so um, I embarked on the path of assimilation. That included uh, a year and a half in a private Catholic school. You can imagine my first day at school when everybody got up, sorry, everybody got up and started doing the, you know, the, the crossing and all of that. I got up and I was looking at them and I was trying to do the same thing. It, not, a, not a good start. Fortunately, they said, no, no, you're Jewish. You, you, you go somewhere else. You don't, you don't have to do that stuff. Thank goodness. Unfortunately, it wasn't my parents who told me that. It was the, the school who told me that. Uh, I had no Jewish education, none, until the time for my bar mitzvah was approaching. Um, at that point, again, it would be socially unacceptable not to have a bar mitzvah as a cultural thing. So I, they sent me to a reform synagogue, Temple Emmanuel, where I learned how to look at Hebrew letters and, and make the noises that are appropriate. Or I, I, I didn't even really know whether I was making the right noises, but, but, but I, I knew what, you know, what the letters were supposed to be, um, the sounds they were supposed to be making. That's all I learned. Um, they, by the way, I had a horrible, horrible singing voice. I still do, as everybody tells me every time I try to sing. Um, my parents, to teach me the bar mitzvah parsha that I had to learn, they enlisted a particular rabbi um, to teach me the, the appropriate uh, liturgy. But that rabbi said, you, know, you, ha you have to learn to put on tefillin first. As soon as my parents heard that, they said, you're out of here. Uh, wouldn't, we wouldn't want to get too Jewish. So they fired him. They found another rabbi who would just teach me the liturgy uh, without, require me, without asking me to put on tefillin. And uh, out of kindness for my horrible voice, he, um, he gave me a very simple melody. Now, the bar mitzvah story is, is actually quite funny. It goes on and on and on, but I don't think we have time for it. If there is time, I, I, can, I can return to it later on. But still, they took you to Israel for the bar mitzvah. The, the, this is the, the interesting part. Why Israel? Huh, I missed that part in my notes. <laughs> Why Israel? Yes, they took me to Israel. My father was a very practical businessman, and he said, okay, this is going to be a big party, and it's going to cost me a lot of money, uh, and if I'm going to spend that kind of money, we might as well get more out of it for the family. So he said, well, why don't we, we, we a friend of ours had gone to Israel for a bar mitzvah, and he said, why don't we do that too, 
And we could also make it a big trip to Europe after Israel for the entire family, have, you know, have a good time. Fine. So he decided to, to invest his money that way. That was the motivation for going to Israel. And it was a perfectly acceptable uh, uh, rationale to say to the neighborhood, oh, he, he, went to, he went to Israel. That's why he's not having a big party in, uh, in, in Montreal. So once you graduated, I guess, from your Judaism at your bar mitzvah, how were your teen years? Was there any connection there? <sighs> no. It got worse. Uh, this is uh, essentially where the wheels came off. Um, I was confused in every way, and I was uh, in puberty, and, uh, uh, and it was the 60s and the 70s, and everything was, was the, the beginning of the Mishigas going on today. That's the foundation of it. Drugs, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Uh, unfortunately, I recklessly embraced that lifestyle. I was a, kind of a hippie. I was trying very, very hard to be cool. I didn't know what else to do. It, uh, nothing else was working for me. I ended up dropping out of uh, junior college. I was taking drugs. I took uh, a lot of LSD and eventually, uh, and it never really worked with me. I don't know why I kept taking it. And I ended up in the Jewish General Hospital in Montreal in the psychiatric ward because I, in the, in the jargon of the times, I had freaked out. Uh, eventually, uh, I dug out of that, and uh, I focused on the only thing I knew to be sort of a good thing to do in the circumstances, which was to try and, and be successful, try and do well at school, try and create some kind of a future for myself. Along the way, I also had turned to Transcendental Meditation, which was very big at the time. Why? Because the Beatles had embraced it. And if it was good enough for the Beatles, it was good enough for me. So I did that. Actually, it helped me. It was just a good, a calming uh, meditation technique. Uh, by the way, it's not Buddhist. It's Hindu. But it, they, they disguise the fact that it's Hindu. But, but it's, a, you know, it's a nice little therapy. Uh, as it turns out, I ended up doing extremely well in school. I had nowhere else to channel my energies, and I put it all there. I did very well in school, and um, I finished McGill University, my undergraduate program, and ended up in Vancouver studying law. And I did very well there too, much to my surprise. What do you think about Judaism at that time? At best, Judaism was a locked door. In fact, it was more than a locked door. It was a door, a secret door. Not only was it locked, but it had been plastered and painted over. So you didn't even know it was there. It was the last conceivable thing to me uh, as an alternative way of life, as a way to help myself through the, the problems I had been ex experiencing. It was inaccessible and hidden. To me, it was inconceivable that Judaism had anything whatsoever to offer. Sorry, I've lost my place here. At worst, for me, like my parents, uh, Judaism was an object to be ridiculed, especially the Hasidism. It never occurred to me that it held anything of value, although there were some fleeting positive glimpses that touched me briefly and quickly forgotten. Let me give you an example. Um, uh, I was going out for, uh, I think it was a Saturday afternoon, I'm not sure, uh, but I think it was a Saturday afternoon, 
with a friend. We were going to go do some fun stuff. And he said to me, listen, we have to stop off along the way. Uh, my father insists that I attend uh, something that's going on downtown. I said, sure. So we went downtown to uh, Chabad of McGill, McGill University. Uh, and what had happened was his father had donated a Sefer Torah. Uh, and it might have been their first Sefer Torah. It was a big deal. Were you there? You weren't there. Uh, uh, and um, so they were outside the front door of, of, of Chabad. And they were holding the Sefer Torah, dancing around all these Hasidim. And this was sort of like the, the, the epitome of everything I had learned to ridicule. And I'm watching these guys dancing around with the Torah, just saying, when can we get out of here? And who are these idiots anyway? Anyway, finally, we, we, we move on. That's part one of that story. We'll come back to it, because there's a second chapter for it down the road. So I know that you were strongly involved in the Buddhist temple for many years. You were even the president of the Buddhist temple. Could you tell us, how did you get involved with Buddhism? A client, as a lawyer, uh, introduced me to a, a, an odd Japanese branch of, of Buddhism that, that focuses on, on, um, on chanting. This is not Zen, which I do have some respect for. It's something else. Um, I have a tendency uh, to get down, to get a little depressed, uh, and I found it helped. It, uh, I would spend some time, invest in this, and it would be an energizing thing, and it would be a calming thing, and, and it helped me. Um, and it did. It was beneficial, but in retrospect, and quickly in retrospect, uh, it was shallow. Um, then I stumbled onto uh, Tibetan Buddhism, which is much deeper and much more involved, and um, I connected with that, and I threw myself into it. Before long, the, the, the Lama, that's their version of a rabbi, the, the Lama asked me to, uh, uh, to become president of, of a particular center. It was actually the oldest Tibetan Buddhist center in Canada. Uh, and so I was the president of the center for at least 10 years. During that time, uh, I, I, um, I studied and interacted with the top gurus and leaders, and they were impressive people, actually. Um, they had, you know, healthy attitudes towards life and psychology and, and all of that stuff. Uh, and I uh, ended up going to, in, uh, to India at least three different times uh, for, for, you know, three, uh, three weeks at a time. And I attended major events there with, with big Buddhist leaders. And I'll tell you a funny story about that. So I'm, I'm in a place called Bodhgaya. Uh, and there's a, a series of teachings going on for several days with uh, the Karmapa. Karmapa is, is on the same level as the Dalai Lama. Big shot. And up on the stage, there are two translators. Uh, one is a guy I'd encountered many times before. He was uh, a Tibetan, probably in his 50s, very knowledgeable, really good with English, really adept in, uh, in, in Tibetan, and knew how to communicate the Tibetan to, um, uh, to English people. The other translator was a young American kid. 
And what happened o over time, you know, over from one day to the next, is more and more he, the, 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 the Karmapa started, you know, relying heavily only on the Tibetan. And over time, he started asking the young American kid to translate more often. By the end, the kid, the kid, the American kid was doing most of the translating. And I, I was puzzled by this because I knew the other guy was like number one translator. And I said, who is this American kid? I said, oh, that's Ari. Ari? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, so I looked into it and, you know, he's an American Jewish boy uh, who is a graduate of Columbia Law School and a uh, brilliant kid, and um, he, that's what he was doing. But, you know, wherever you go, uh, there, there, there are Jews. I've got another story for another time where I met a, an Eskimo Jew, seventh-generation Jew. That's another story. Um, so what caused you to come home to Judaism? Three things. First of all, Buddhism itself made it possible. I had to somehow tame my own mind and my own habitual thinking. Uh, our habitual thinking were slaves to it. And, and, and so meditation actually helps. It helps you to slow down the internal chatter and to pay attention to what is actually going on inside your own mind and also in the outside world. It, it's actually a healthy process. That helped open me up to realities that I either could not see or refused to see. And there's a lot of the latter going on, too. One of the things I realized is I'm, I'm not Tibetan. Uh, and, and it also opened me up to other realities, uh, that I, such as Judaism, that I would previously dismiss on a habitual knee-jerk basis. I, I, I had to stay open and I was able to stay more open. That's one. Then, during all of this, uh, at school, uh, they knew that my, my daughter was Jewish, and she was, in, and she was a great basketball player, an outstanding basketball player. And um, the, Maccabea, the Canadian Maccabee team really wanted her to play on their team. So they, they approached her, and, and they said, Come on, we, we want you. I said, how much? They said, it's going to cost you $10,000. I said, no. <laughs> then they came back because they really wanted her. They said, okay, $5,000. I said, no. <laughs> you know, the plane's about to take off, and they said, free. We need her. <laughs> okay. So, um, and she had been having kind of a difficult time in her personal life. And so as good parents, we went along to support our daughter. Ended up in Israel, and uh, you know, I, I think there's some kind of light switch they flick on as you enter the, the country. Suddenly I'm saying, hmm, this is nice. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling Jewish. Uh, and, and even more so, I like feeling Jewish. <laughs> so that's the, that's the second part. I, and then I come back to Vancouver, and there's a third element. I have a very dear friend named Dr. Yap Hamburger, interventional cardiologist and a music composer. You will be hearing more about Dr. Hamburger, not from me, but from the press if you pay attention to the arts. He's writing symphonies and, and operas, and he's brilliant. But he's also a very good friend. 
And uh, he had always been laughing at my professed Buddhism. He said, yeah, you're Jewish, come on. Uh, he was right. And, and he, I came back and I told him how after going to Israel, I realized I'm Jewish. And I feel Jewish and I like being Jewish. He said, well, you know what's next? <laughs> I said, no. He says, you have to come to shul. And, and, and especially you have to come meet Rabbi Fagelstock. You'll love him. You'll love his family. Everything. You know, I resisted. I resisted for a long time. Finally, uh, he gets me to uh, a, a Kabbalah class, a Kabbalah class. And I sit in the Kabbalah class. And I, at first, I'm just taking it in. I, 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 I don't know what to do. I don't talk much. I'm just paying attention. You know, first of all, I found you very impressive, Rabbi. You had a lot of the same characteristics that I found in the, the big uh, Buddhist leaders. So, I mean, just a nice vibration is what I mean by that. Nothing else. Um, secondly, um, the content was very interesting, and it was spiritual. It was not, you know, I, I thought Judaism was about rules and rituals and all of that, but this was deeply spiritual. Um, and that impressed me, and it connected with me because, you know, I was a self-professed uh, Buddhist, spiritualist, whatever, so that impressed me. And, and then something else, that, like I, I was sitting there, and I felt like I'd been taken back in time, like to an old yeshiva or something. I, the, the, the method of teaching, the style of teaching, even the sing-song, you know, the, the way that, that, that things are sometimes said. Um, I just felt transported and enchanted. In a sense, I fell in love. Now, that's an emotional response, not an intellectual response. But that was the last thing. And, and with that emotional response, there was something in me that said, welcome home. Welcome home. And I continued. After that, I gradually connected more and more with Judaism. I experienced authentic community and bonds of friendship. I felt the trademark symbol of Chabad, which is warmth. I like warmth. I'm an emotional guy. Then, as I was exposed to Hasidus, I saw and appreciated the deep spirituality and wisdom that was there. Hasidim, in my, in my vocabulary coming there, were obviously the yogis of Judaism. Not your regular reform rabbi or whatever, you know, which is what I'd encountered before. This was genuine spirituality. And since then, gradually, Hasidus has become the candle that illuminates all other aspects of, of Judaism for me which would otherwise still be behind the locked door. And in fact, I was just telling the rabbi, I, I've had a whole new breakthrough, which is Talmud, which I still saw as, you know, even until very recently, I still saw as, uh, it's just rules. I don't like rules, you know. I'm a lawyer. I don't like laws. <laughs> um, over, uh, I was also exposed to, to many great teachers who nurtured and ex inspired me lovingly. First and foremost, yourself. 
and your parents. When I first met your father, I was alone in Montreal visiting. I felt I was in the presence of an angel. I still feel that way about him. Then my rabbi suggested that I take a look at a particular video from Rabbi Moshe Brisky. What was it called? Uh, you can run, but you can't hide. And this uh, hit the, the nail on the head and, 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 and really moved me deeply emotionally. Any of you who are familiar with Rabbi Brisky, it's almost impossible to go through uh, one of his talks without weeping. I was tremendously inspired by that video, watched it more than once. If you haven't seen it, see it. Um, it's on, uh, it used to be called Jewish TV, it's got a different brand. Um, but I also was exposed to other great teachers, such as Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, Rabbi Manus Friedman, and Rabbi Shays Tob. These people all had a very strong, particular influence on me. Big impact. Finally, I developed, through the guidance of my rabbi, a very deep appreciation for the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I have total trust in his words and his guidance, even now, as a living presence. And let me tell you, I'm a lawyer. I don't trust anybody. <laughs> I don't trust anybody. The, rabbi, the Rebbe, I trust, I also trust my rabbi. I learned that in this world of lies, pain, vanity, and nothingness, angels are dancing everywhere. Seriously. Why were you searching for religion in the first place? I was not consciously searching for religion. What I was doing was running away. I was running away from my own mistakes and my own pain. The pain of materialistic pursuits and just wasted time. The term for becoming a Buddhist is taking refuge. And that's what I was seeking. I was seeking refuge from the storm, from, from the darkness, from the, the, the Mishagas. From, also, for most of my life, I had a deep value for truth. And it's kind of hard because there's very little truth in this world. There was then, and there's even less now. Um, so, you know, when, when I start to smell it, when I start to see it, uh, it makes an impact, and I found truth. I needed meaning, and I needed purpose in my life. And Judaism provided it better than anything else. Everything that happens, I learned, is from Hashem, including my detour with Buddhism. The door to spiritual Torah Judaism was locked and hidden, impossible. But Hashem guided me through a Buddhist detour that put me 
in a place where I could, least, I could at least see the locked door and open it a crack. Now that you're home with your Judaism, how would you say the difference to you was the way you felt when you were the president of the Buddhist temple and how you feel today? Is that on here? No. <laughs> the, as in the title of this talk, I'm home. I came home. I'm in with my family. And it's meaningful. And it's leading somewhere. And not only does it help me, it gives me an opportunity to help others. What do you see as the greatest challenge facing young people today? The things that I found confusing as a young man have increased exponentially. It's really crazy right now. Aggression, division, hatred, lies everywhere. Uh, morality has been inverted. It's been turned on its head. And, and not only that, people are bullied and, 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 and tricked into adopting and embracing things that are so unholy and, and so destructive, both spiritually and, and just as, as a, for human beings. The metaphor that uh, the Rebbe imparted to Benjamin Netanyahu is apt. The world is filled with darkness. It is an ocean of lies. But there is a candle that has been lit. In fact, there are thousands of candles that have been lit. And they're waiting, they're flickering in the dark for all the young people. All you have to do is come home. What advice do you have for people who are searching today? Sorry to be so repetitious. <laughs> Come home. You're loved. There's meaning. There's reality. There's family. Don't allow your spiritual birth rate right to be concealed behind a locked door. Do not reject what you don't understand. Real treasures are always hidden. I had no idea that Judaism could be so profound. If only I had understood that brilliant spirit permeating Judaism, I could have avoided so much pain and suffering. There is a candle burning in this world of darkness, burning brighter and brighter every day. And uh, Rabbi Mintz, you are one of the people holding one of the brightest candles right now. This organization is a... This organization is doing so much for me, never mind others. And, and, and may it continue to prosper and reach out and hold a candle for everybody. Judaism is an authentic spiritual treasure trove. Young people feel the warmth and camaraderie 
of Shabbat, Shabbat lunch at your local Chabad house, what's the worst that can happen? You might eat too much gefilte fish. In particular, I urge you to expose yourself at least a little to Hasidus. Without Hasidus, I would never have been able to appreciate the rest of Judaism, and now it's all illuminated. What part of Hasidus excites you the most? That's hard to say. Um, the, 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 the Tanya, obviously. And, and before we get to Hasidus, the Hasidim, they walk the walk. They are what they talk about. They emanate. They serve. They only care about others. They're working tirelessly. Uh, uh, and that in itself welcomes you home. Then, as you, you delve into, into Hasidus, it is, it is the key. It's the key. It, it, it's not just rules. It's not just rituals. It's understanding the core of what's going on. As I was saying before, I, I never could appreciate Talmud. As a lawyer, I really have no patience for law, and I know that you can manipulate law. I know that a lot of the use of law is actually a deception. Um, and it just seems like unnecessary, aimless rules. Well, as I've been telling you <laughs> here recently, I now understand it's the will of God. The rules are, yes, it's fine, there's a God, but, and he's given us commandments. How do we engage in those commandments? How do we carry them out? How do we perform mitzvot? It's all in the details. Um, do you feel now that your neshama is lit? It might be lit a little bit too much at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you'd like to share? Yes. Uh, for, first of all, I'll finish uh, chapter two of, of, of the Chabad of Miguel story. Uh, my, parent, my mother still lives in Montreal. My father lived there uh, until he passed away in, in uh, 2012. Uh, and I was going back, uh, back and forth for, you know, a few times a year. And I started going to Chabad of McGill again, Rabbi Shmuley Weiss, a wonderful man. Uh, and so I'd be going back to various occasions. One, um, uh, the end of uh, the high holidays, you know, I, I flew over on Chol Hamad and uh, went for Sukkot, and there were a bunch of things go going on, and then finally culminated in Simchas Torah. So it's just a, you know, a regular fun time having Simchas Torah. And everybody's doing what? Hakafot? Ha Hakafot, yeah. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, the whole, cr the whole crowd runs down the stairs out onto the street, and I follow down. And as soon as I get to the bottom of the stairs on the street, Rabbi Weiss hands me the Torah. <laughs> and I'm dancing around in the same spot where I saw other people dancing around 40 years before. And, and, and I'm realizing, whoops, 
I'm realizing, hey, I've been here before, but now I'm the guy dancing with the Torah. <laughs> and it was quite a moment. The two bookends, 40 years apart. Later on, I asked uh, Rabbi Weiss, did you know what you were doing? Did, did you, because did you? I told him the other story. And he said, yeah, of course I did. <laughs> quite quite uh, fetching. So the interesting thing is that he gave you that same Torah. No. No? No. Uh, unfortunately, that Torah went missing. Went missing? Uh, I, I, something happened there. There was a fire or something. Somebody took the Torah, uh -huh. and it never came back. And my friend's father was very upset about that. But that's another story. Um, but uh, if only it had been. Um, so the message, the concluding message, is never give up. Hashem truly does work in mysterious ways over prolonged periods of time. When you don't have a clue that anything is happening, something is happening. Little incidents, uh, those glimpses I had had earlier on, and actually there's another story I want to tell. Uh, little, but I'll, I'll just pause it for a second. The little glimpses over time that you don't even notice Suddenly, again, this, the next story is 50 years old. <laughs> oh, maybe not 50, more like 45. For some reason, well, I, I was in high school and I was not doing well. I was a confused kid who didn't want to study and, and, and was turned off to everything and, and just looking to be a cool guy. Um, and because of that, I was missing a credit that I needed to graduate from high school. So I went to uh, a class. Uh, to make up the credit uh, at Montreal High School. It was a small class. Um, and in the class, I don't remember anybody else in the class. One person I remember, he was a Lubavitcher Hasid. And we started talking, and of course, he ferrets out that I'm, uh, I'm Jewish, and he starts telling me about Hasidus and, and, and the Hasidic way of life. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm polite, I don't really believe what he's saying, and I think it's you know, kind of silly, but at the same time, he said, listen, you know, you're pursuing all your materialistic pursuits. That's a waste of time. Doesn't matter. Basically, come home. And you know, I, I was polite, and I said, well, thank you, and then I just forgot about it. Well, I didn't, that's actually the point. I didn't forget about it, I dismissed it and moved on. But from time to time, up until I met you, up, up until I met you. I would just reflect back on that. I'd think about it. I'd think, What's going on here? You know, the, the, why did I continue to remember this one individual, this, this one chassid who planted one tiny little seed? Why did that seed stay there? Why did I remember? But it did. And even, you know, as I started to come back, there it was. Uh, and I'm still grateful to that gentleman today. So what appear to be minor events, even apparent non-events, which that was, can have a huge positive effect decades later. That's it. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings. 
and TorahCafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.